Welcome to this blank book podcast where we are village idiots trying to understand these vast great works that people yeah. wrote back in the day. My name is Stephen, and I hope I am not a savage man. My name is Caroline Gorman, and I'm wondering if it would be such a bad thing if we all were. <laughs> and uh, I'm Alex Bennett, and I'm Savage AF. <laughs> uh, cool, yeah. So, you know, like, just like quickly, though, like on that, that completely destroys everything that there is about a savage man because you just, <laughs> right. you added imagination where there shouldn't be no imagination whatsoever. So it's like, it's like, uh, yeah. I sort of feel like the savage man is like, Yo, do whatever you want to me, but if you fuck with my friends, <laughs> that's savage. Reading it with that uh, meaning of the word savage does give it a very different tone. But I think I like it better because he's just whining about not being cool. Maybe. Right? Really? That, that's yeah. what it is. It's like he really like he he really wants to be Barry Grylls. That's all that he wants to be because Barry Grylls doesn't give a shit about anything else. It's like, yeah, man, I had to be clean and piss because that was the only way that I was going to survive. And then Rousseau was just like. And that's badass, man. You're right. a fucking man, you know, for doing that. So I realized you said Bear girls, but I heard better girls. <laughs> and it just really took me a minute. <laughs> well, even then, like, like, that even still kind of goes with it, <laughs> it too. But it, it, yeah. it, it, it fits yeah. because it's like, because I even yeah. wrote, it's like, is this guy a misogynist? Is he a very active misogynist? Yes. I think <laughs> he's pretty ahead of his time. I think he's pretty woke. <laughs> Yes, but I feel like most of the authors we read are going to be real misogynists. But not like 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 actively like like he like the really bad kind. Yeah, like the really bad kind. <laughs> he, well, he was against the traditional family structure. When he had a child, he would send it to the orphanage oh, yeah. seven <laughs> times. Seven times. Oh, by the way, by the way, today we're reading a discourse on the origin of inequality by Jean Jacques Rousseau. Yeah, and uh, for those who don't know, uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, he was a messy... Vile human being. In, and a messy bitch that loves drama. He was constantly alienating all of his friends, getting kicked out of this or that republic or city, or... <laughs> at the time of this writing, he had... Of writing this essay, he had reconverted to Calvinism to get his uh, citizenship to the Republic of Geneva, where he was born... Uh, because at that point he had alienated all of his friends and connections in Paris and had to, you know, start fresh. And it's great because he wrote a 600-page autobiography, which I really don't recommend reading. But stuff like this keeps happening over and over to him. He loses friends, they turn on him, and never once does he self-reflect. Never right, once yeah. is he like, is it something about me? Right. <laughs> he's just like, he's like, he's the most, he likes all form of self perception like 100 percent. like he can't see like he can't observe the world that's going on right. around him currently yeah because he doesn't see like, like well some really bad shit is about to happen like he could yeah. there, like he never saw anything about the french revolution happening oh really yeah like that, that, that um, yeah that, and that's like what the guy said like the it was really cool reading the introduction because the guy pretty much says like yeah this he wrote some, like, he wrote really great stuff, but he's still a horrible person. Oh, like, yeah. yeah. I, 
find myself mostly disagreeing with everything he says, but I've read all of it more than once. It's, <laughs> it's fascinating, yeah. and I think he's a really good writer. Yeah, he's he's this guy who cheats on his best friend's like wife, and then is like, "Sorry, but I'm Polly," and like that's his. <laughs> that's his yeah. <laughs> and, and he's like, "By it's the just way, just an artifact of society. Get over it." Like, <laughs> right. Yeah. This is a construct that you developed. So. Uh, so was that our uh, brief background? Was that the brief background? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, so, we'll we'll get better at these transitions as, <laughs> as we as we. Or maybe not. Or maybe People not. Like you know, we'll just. It's fine. <laughs> we'll, anyway, now on to the opening question segment. Okay. <laughs> We're this is. <laughs> yes. We don't have to be like. And now to part two of our conversation. All right, all right. Person C, you're up. I find it very helpful. I bet someone out there somewhere also does. Anyway. Then why use names? Why not just give us numbers? (laughs) Thank you, C. Moving on. We will start with the first sentence of part two. Because this is a sentence that just has to be read out loud. The first person who, having enclosed a plot of land, took it into his head to say, this is mine, and found people simple enough to believe him, was the true founder of civil society. And then later on, at the end of that paragraph, he goes on to say, let us therefore take things farther back and try to piece together what happened to bring us here. So my impression was that this institution of private property is sort of in the middle of his progression. So what I was hoping we could do first is just like lay out what he thinks the progression from from savage man to society is. Yeah. Just so we can be real clear because it's, it was to me not very intuitive at all. Right. Like when when does property come into it? Yeah. It took me, because he starts out by saying that he's like, I'm going to split this into like saying that that there's savage man which that was like, I never understood why. And I don't know if that's the translator's thing or if that was Rousseau's thing where he never gave savage man a proper, it was never properly identified as savage man. It was always like, there was not like, it was never a proper noun. It's not a proper noun in the book. Like it's just savage man. It's like, that's a savage man. That's a savage man. It's like, as opposed to like personifying the savage man. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It does. What did that that stood that, out what to did that me. Mean to you? Yeah. That stood out to me because it was, he was, it, by not personifying it, he was generalizing all of it, you know. And it's it, it goes back, you know, probably best for us to describe what like a savage man really is. Yeah. You know, so um, my handy dandy little notebook. You know, savage man is pretty much the person that lives in harmony. Paraphrasing vast majority of the first part that savage man is lives in harmony with nature it's like the the first step after humanity being an animal and before being civilized it's because there there are some distinctions between savage man and the rest of the natural world yes yeah there, there are two things yeah. Absolutely inherent in this idea. And the first is that nature is extraordinarily bountiful and mm-hmm. can support people without much effort. And then the second one is that there is a progression yeah. <laughs> from animals to highest, what Rousseau would, you know, probably right. French to Rousseau. Right? Yeah, so, and like the, and the, the savage man is, to use Rousseau's word, um, 
it's a very it's a good word too um it's the very first form if you know like if we're identifying different forms it's the very first form of what rousseau terms as perfectibility mm-hmm. where man sees that what he is right and says i can make this just a little bit better and just having that little bit of right. consciousness right there that makes him that stands out to him a little bit more mm-hmm. or that that separates him from being an animal that's the very first distinction between an animal and a man is that yeah is what he's about to talk about now when you brought up that he never uses a proper noun mm-hmm. for savage man that reminded me of the section in the introduction where he says this is not a factual <laughs> investigation yeah. at all this is an abstraction right he says it may not even exist right. yeah yeah uh and it's interesting how his method of doing that is so there's so much emotional gradient in it like at one point he talks about like uh, the savage man. That's the first time he looked into himself. He felt the first emotion of pride at a time when he scarce knew how to distinguish different orders of things by looking upon his species as the highest order. He prepared the way of assuming preeminence as an individual. The fact that he feels like he has such insight into the emotional tenor of these developments, not only like, oh, savage man discovered this tool does this and was able to use their brain to conquer nature, but sort of the the personal and emotional progression of that is, I don't know, so so unlike the way that we think about uh, uh, interrogating prehistory in anthropology today. Like he's trying to get, trying to chart the internal progress of humanity to civilization, rather than looking at like what is the empirical evidence? How did we get there? It's a completely different method. And the fact that he thinks he can understand the emotions of someone living that remotely in such a different society is not an assumption that I would have. Right, yeah. The yeah. idea is that like they lived in such a different society we could never access there. Yeah. And it took me a long time, mostly through like the entirety of the first part, really, <laughs> to I was like, why are you talking about this? How come you haven't answered any single part about the question? And it does hold that, you know, we should probably say like, you know, that this was this question, you know, it was Proposed by the Academy of Dijon. Right, yeah. This was a, there was a contest that this, I guess, uh, French Academy did where you would submit an essay. Rousseau had his first discourse, which was on the arts and sciences, had won the like grand prize. And this was this, for the second competition, and he lost. Right. But yeah. Part of it, the reason why he lost was because it was too long. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sounds like it, so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now that I've read it, like, this sounds like exactly what we're so It's do. amazing how much his personality comes to <laughs> Yeah, and it's, it's amazing, like, how I can read it, and it's like, it sounds... I gotta give him credit, though, like, from here, it's like, he's very, you know, like, what you see is what you get from right, so. Yeah. So, and that he writes in such a clear, plain-spoken manner that this is my very first, like, true philosophy text, and it's like... Wow, like I can follow through with what he's saying, <laughs> yeah. commas and semicolons and all. Like, uh, someone should read the question. Okay, uh, what is the origin of, iliqu- of inequality among men, and is it authorized by the natural law? So the first part of the like he he split his answer into two parts. Mm-hmm. You know, the first part where he describes like how Alex said he was like this anthropologic history how men be, how you have this savage primitive man um 
and how that evolved into a civilized man and eventually into civilization. Right. It took me a long time to figure out that that's what he was trying to do. Like, throughout most of the first half, it's like, why are you talking so much about this one person? And it, that's when it dawned on me. It's like, oh, he's, like, bringing about, like, some of the motivations as to why man is the way that it is today. You know, like, it starts, like, some of those... Some of the same characteristics that we see in the man of society originated with the savage man, you know? Yeah. So. And some did not. And some did not. Yeah. You know, some did not. So that and the parts that I thought that did not that were pretty amazing were like his lack of passion for something that, you know, that existed beyond his need for survival. You know, that was not an inherent quality of savage man. That's a, that's man of society, and again, he did not capitalize man of society. That's all. It's just right. Yeah, he just left it as but one person. like all of these people, they love to cap capitalize nature. <laughs> Do they? Yeah, like, nature is like a guy. Yeah, like it's that's a, and that's yeah. why. Like, and it just like that. Just like it just it stood out to me. And like in my notes, when I wrote it, I wrote savage man as a proper person, and then I realized like, oh shit, he's not doing that. Like right. And that I don't know why, but that was that kind of a flexible abstraction. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. That's what it was. Um, to to go back to Caroline's question about what is the like order of operations here? Sorry, uh, lost. no, no, no. It's, uh, this is it's all. We should, we should probably know a question he's answering. <laughs> uh, Maybe I should have asked that question. Yeah, uh, it's all questions here, folks. Uh, Welcome to a podcast where we just ask questions. <laughs> don't we look for don't look for well. any. Definitely no answers. <laughs> uh, it seems like before the stage of private property, there's just a general stage of learning how to make conveniences. Or uh, early on in the second part, he talks about uh, um, the the simplicity and solitude of man's life in this new condition, the paucity of his wants. The, uh, and the implements he had invented to satisfy them left him a great deal of leisure, which he employed to furnish himself with the many conveniences unknown to his fathers. This was the first yoke that he inadvertently imposed on himself and was the first source of the evils he prepared for his descendants. Uh, for besides continuing thus to enervate both body and mind, these conveniences lost with use almost all of their power to please and even denigrated into real needs till the want of them became far more disagreeable than the possession of them had been pleasant. So, um, but I guess to go back to the question about the property rights thing, it seems like the property, the, the idea of property rights are some kind of logical conclusion of this process of convenience, of of being able to seemingly eliminate the the wants and needs that the savage man has in his environment, but actually creates far more uh, wants, far more wants and needs, far more wants and needs, which can only be satisfied with other people. Like Rousseau, there's a constant theme of the savage man is is sort of independent and is able to satisfy all of their wants or almost all of their wants uh, within themselves. So there's no need for society. Um, but once you multiply those wants, you need other people. And in some way, I property is inherent to that process. Like, So here's the example I imagine. Yeah. So you're a savage man. Nature is bountiful. Your food is easy to get. So you're 
you know, you have water, you have food, what else do you need at the moment? But you also have this free time. So let's say you spend your free time and you learn how to weave and you weave yourself a blanket. Well, once you start using a blanket at night, thereafter you need it, right? right? You are no longer comfortable in what is now cold weather to you. Somehow the fact that you now need a blanket leads to property. Do you think that because you have that blanket, you realize that, oh, someone else might want, like, since I have this blanket and since it comforts me, this might comfort somebody else as well. So you become afraid of theft? Not not afraid of theft. You start saying, like, I, like, in terms of property and in terms of house, like, this is assuming, like, skipping, like, a lot of history past this or whatever. Like, what if this is, like, the very first start of capitalism, you know, where he's like, this is, like, I have this blanket. This gives me comfort. If I make another one and if I sell it to somebody else, they can want, they can have that same thing, too. They see that that other person's cold. So that's interesting because that's very empathetic in well, a way. Like, the, you are imagining that someone else has a lack and you can supply it. Well, and he even says that, too. And he says that, he like, in the first part, he says that pity is part of the natural, is part of is uh is is a natural sentiment um yeah just quoted directly um it is therefore quite certain that pity is a natural sentiment which by moderating in each individual the activity of love of oneself contributes to the mutual preservation of the entire species then he goes on to say you know pity is uh, and he, oh yeah, he says instead of the sublime maxim of reason, justice, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Pity inspires all men with another maxim of natural goodness, much less perfect, but perhaps more useful than the preceding one. But if you had all this natural pity, wouldn't you just make another blanket and give it to your other man who's cold at night? Do what is good for you with as little harm as possible to others. No, I feel like this this idea of capitalism, basically, this early on, skips a bunch of steps. That, and that's why I say, like, I'm skipping a lot. Well, because, first of all, you have to have division of labor for it to be worthwhile for you to make me a bowl and me to give you a blanket. And I have to have cultivated more needs additional to the blanket, right? I now have to need, you know, in quotes, both a blanket and a bowl for you to be able to give me anything, so like this right, right. and also down the path. And capitalism is a relatively new system in world history. Like before, there was feudalism and serfdom, and well, like there was sale. I mean, I mean, there was sale, but like yeah. selling things. Yeah, but like capitalism, there's a certain ex- like laborers are exchanging their labor for something. In a feudal system, you don't have that choice. You are, you know, basically the property and and servants of a particular lord. That's just a meaningless oh, okay. distinction. That's not relevant just, to this discussion. It's a, and it's Maybe a, we yeah. should call it selling something instead of Let's capitalism. call it, yeah, let's call like it property. selling something. And, yeah. And not, not capitalism and it's not Marxism and it's not, we're not trying to do any of that. But, you know, and he, it's, it's weird because he's making these, you know, he's making these really philosoph- philosophically economical points in this discussion, but it's really hard to really label it as one thing because he'll contradict himself whenever he says it. You know, he even says that even though one man is profiting profiting from something, another man is losing something else because of it. He sees it as a scale. Like, where I'm profiting, someone else is losing. 
And so, but at the other hand, you know, he makes a whole, like, the foundation of society is property, which means that someone else doesn't have that property. So there is already, by his definition, society is, or civilization is, by the natural law, it's going to be unequal. That no one is going to ever start on the same foot. He does somewhat suggest that civil society will inherently be unequal. But I want to go back to the blanket. Sorry. Uh, Sorry, 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 sorry. (laughs) Okay, so I have this blanket. I really like my blanket. I've developed a need for it. And from that, maybe... Okay, how, how about this? So maybe conveniences and comforts are inherently tailored to your own body. So, like, this blanket is the perfect size for me. It's exactly the right weight and heat and all that stuff. Uh, So it matters that I get this specific blanket at the end of the night. It needs to be mine. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's the sort of distinction we're learning about just based on the sort Mm -hmm. of natural inequality of, I don't know, my body's different. It retains less heat than this person, but more than this. Is that the sort of natural inequality we're learning to discern? It's... It seems like that. It seems I would agree with that. At one point, he mentions that uh, he you know, paints kind of a picture of early civilization, of people living in neighboring huts and having transient commerce. And he says that men began now to take the difference between objects into account and to make comparisons. They acquired imperceptibly the ideas of beauty and merit, which soon gave rise to feelings of preference. Mm-hmm. To relate that to... We discussed this earlier about the creation of new wants and conveniences. Uh, maybe this is drawing a little bit too much from outside, but it ro- reminded me very much of like the Epicurean idea of freedom, where it's sort of or like of pleasure, where pleasure is being free from want. I mean, this is kind of an idea that's echoed all over the place in religions and even like modern sociology. You hear what people call the hedonic tra- treadmill of it's sort of like true freedom and true pleasure is being able to be satisfied with the least amount of things possible because it gives you a freedom of movement, a freedom of lifestyle that you don't have in this type of civil society that he's describing. And, um, so, so wait, the, the huts part that he's describing is already past the point of this sort of freedom. It's already on the track to, to losing it. Yes. Cause he, he, he's, he's talking about there's, I mean, they're living in, huts and have commerce they're mm-hmm. not fully in a savage state um and he he singles out this this making distinction between things to be like fundamental to the civilizing process and i'm just wondering if it how to connect that to like if if it's true that drawing those kinds of distinctions is the seed of civilization does that mean that living in this state of sort of like Epicurean, we might call it freedom, where you're free from most wants, that's a, a world of, of uniformity, of similarity, of, of in some ways, like your wants are very predictable, your environment, uh, though it might be very different, you're, you're able to interact with it in, in, a, in a wider variety of ways than civilized man is. Like savage man can hunt better, can can uh, uh, harvest better, can do all these sorts of things, that that distinction, or the, that the ability to draw distinctions is the seed germinating the notion of property. 
And then once we have property and we flourish into division of labor and all sorts of different types of products to appeal to this and that, we further refine our ability to make comparisons and see distinctions. Right, yeah. They feed each other. Right, so so I, I guess that means that that the savage man does not draw very many distinctions. No, because he's already, he's, he, he can't, it's not that he doesn't draw that many distinctions, it's that he is incapable of drawing those many distinctions. Right. You know, he, he has all that he, all of his needs are confined to, I mean, all of his wants are mm-hmm. confined to his needs for survivalism. Right. He has nothing that extends beyond that, necessity of, of surviving in, in the in the passage that i quoted the term difference it seems like what rousseau is talking about is a comparison because he says feelings gives rise to feelings of preference or merit or beauty so it's maybe not just like literally drawing a distinction between something but almost like giving two similar things one giving one thing more value than the other it's it has an emotional or social component as well right status yeah. starts to enter into it i think even i think that's true and becomes more true as we get closer to civil society but i also think just the mental ability to compare things and yeah. determine relationships and make generalities is something he would say and does say that savage man doesn't have and then once you start to develop it that's that's when it, things start to go downhill Right. He says that when he's talking about language, and he says basically, "Savage man only speaks in proper nouns." Yeah, he has no concept. <laughs> I mean, he says that. Yeah, yeah I know. Savage yeah. man has no concept of yeah. a tree. It's always this tree, that tree. tree. Yeah. yeah, his his vocabulary is so like it, like it, it he it's so it's it's very spread out, but it's only like in it, like a foot like a foot deep because. Yeah. He doesn't have any form of way of categorizing it because right. there he can't tell that this oak tree and like using Rousseau's example, he can't tell this oak tree over here on my right differently from mm-hmm. this oak tree to my left because they have different, you know, growing patterns or whatever. So he sees them as completely different trees. That seems so laughably wrong to me. It's and yeah. it's it's yeah. it's Rousseau like and it's just so like some of the things that he said are just. But I mean, but it seems so laughably wrong that I wondered why he needed that to be true. I mean, Talking about like the the specifics of language, like what does that have to do with? I mean, yeah, why does he need it to be true that he has all these other distinguishers between savage man and civil man? Civil man. Why do you also need it to be true? Why is it so important that savage man only speaks in proper nouns? Linguistically, someone can speak in generalities and understand relationships without necessarily becoming a vain reprobate like right, we get yeah. in civil society. But apparently not for Rousseau. He thinks there's some direct connection between It took me, yeah. and I'm still very unclear on it, how Savage Man is considered a man at all. Because from just using his definitions of perfectibility, Savage Man cannot progress past a certain state or has not or has not progressed past Which are a different, certain. Right? right yes because if you say has not he has that potential too right yeah. yeah like like almost like what distinguishes savage man at the absolute earliest step of its development in the animal world 
is that Savage Man is still like an animal, is only pursuing, uh, you know, the needs of survival. Uh, he at one point says they don't understand death, they only understand pain. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but there's still this inherent capacity within Savage Man that animals don't have. That's seemingly at the very first step, that's the only thing that separates Savage Man from the animal world. And also that Savage Man knows he's better than animals. Isn't that one of the passages we read earlier? That's one of the very... The, the, that's one of the... Yeah. That's, that's one of the first things he... First relations he becomes aware of. Well, it's a develop. It's a development, yes. Yeah. yeah, it's something that has to happen. But, like, at the very earliest stage, like, before Savage Man is... I don't know what this would look like, but if we're charting out the development, yeah. Like, it seems like from the onset, Savage Man... Uh, Oh, is not different from animal kind except in its uh, potential. Yes. And then somewhere along that, just the fact that he becomes aware that he is better than animals mm-hmm. is part of what puts him on the path to civil society because it has hierarchy in it. Yes. Right? He doesn't right. just notice that he's different than animals. He thinks everything is different because he only has a language right. of proper nouns, right? Yeah. Everything is different from everything. So it's specifically the... Better than better part. than part, better of, than it, part yeah. of it, and then he's saying that because it's because that high because of hierarchy is inherent in okay. apparently nature and in savage man that that's going to naturally propagate into society who into, into civil into civilization. The so the the comparison thing would y'all agree that to compare something often requires a notion of similarity because you need to evaluate different quantities like to say that. That this person is a better friend than this other person. You have to know. You have to know the degree that they're similar and yeah. different. Yeah. Different, yeah. And that if Savage Man only can understand differences, then they don't really have a notion of similarity. They don't have a notion of common humankind as a concept. They don't really see another human as another human beyond, yeah. you know. That's interesting. So, and despite living in a state that is closer to equality, they would not have a conception of it of equality because yeah. everything be because this mythical savage man who doesn't exist and we're not talking about right any yeah actual it's any actual culture. thing at all yeah, yeah. And, and and that would go back to the whole thing about the trees like how he says about the trees like this one's different from this one even though they have like yeah. like a human you can tell it's like well like humans like they they look the same or whatever and all that but they're because both oak savage, trees. they're, they're both, both oak trees. trees yeah but he even says too Mm-hmm. You know, like, I mean, going back to language or whatever, like, going back to language into arithmetic, you know, like, Savage Man can't imagine that he has ten fingers and that you will blow his fucking mind if you say you have as many toes as you have fingers and that you have as many arms as you have legs and mm-hmm. you have as many legs as you have eyes. And, that, like, just, like, doing yeah. all that and, like, that, like, the things, like, Savage Man has no concept of even counting beyond or even thinking beyond right that level so the first step is noticing he's better than animals yeah uh is the second step when he starts to live in small nuclear families that's where i get lost because the first step is obviously i am better than the first thing is i am better than this animal even though this animal is stronger than me and can kill me I am better this, than this animal because I can follow it and I can tr- track it and then from there I can kill it. But 
right after that, I have no idea what would set like what makes that what makes Savage Man different from say an animal. Because and and it also goes like he's scared of dying too. But I would assume that you know, every animal at some baseline would be scared of dying, even though Rousseau only says that they only they can only know hurt. You know, right. they can only know pain, which, you know, that's total bullshit to me. But yeah. that's animals the, don't love. Animals I, don't love, damn it. Yeah. <laughs> Buster loves me. <laughs> well, I mean, does Rousseau think animals can have natural pity? Whether or not we agree. Ooh. Does he? Does he? Does he, does. he say that? No. I, he says I, that they deserve pity. He says that you know because uh, we we base capacity for or our compassion is based off of sentience, not rationality. We should temper our cruelty towards beasts. Or let me see if I can find the quote. But that wouldn't mean that animals. That it. That doesn't mean that pity is a defining feature of man. Yeah, because right. like, all he says there is that pity is a natural sentiment. He doesn't say it's a natural sentiment to man. Um, but, so he says in the uh, first part, I see nothing in any animal but an ingenious machine to which nature hath given senses to wind itself up, to guard itself to a certain degree against anything that might tend to disorder or destroy it. I perceive exactly the same thing in the human machine with this difference, that in the operations of the brute, nature is the sole agent, whereas man has some share his own operations in his character as a free agent. Uh, and I think he even lists the, the like two main ones as being, uh, where is it? It's like his two principles. Uh, two principles of? Prior to reason. One of them deeply, well, I guess he says, one of them deeply interesting us in our own welfare and preservation, and the other exciting a natural repugnance to seeing any other sensible being particularly any of our own, suffer pain or death. I mean, that first characteristic is certainly shared with animals. But not necessarily the second. But not necessarily the second. His definition says that, like, humanity is fundamentally different, has, has some different qualities than animals. Would the capacity for pity be that, though? So, right after part two starts... You know, in the first six or seven paragraphs, he's, I think, talking about the origin of pity, but he doesn't necessarily say that explicitly. Can you point yes. to... Yes, so the paragraph starts, although his fellow man, fellow men, mm-hmm. were not for him what they are for us, and though he had hardly anything more to do with them than with other animals, he still observed them. And over time... He saw that they all acted as he would have done under similar circumstances, and therefore he concluded that their way of thinking and feeling was in complete conformity with his own. And from this important truth, the best rules of conduct became that it was appropriate to observe towards them, towards other people, to treat them well. Sorry, I was summarizing. I could have lost my place in these long sentences. But the point being, he was at some point exposed to being around other men, other people. It didn't mean anything to him, but over time he noticed that they acted similarly to him. And so from that, he reached some conclusion, so like applied his reason and realized they must be like him and feel the same things he felt. 
That seems to me like the origin of natural pity, which would imply it's not really natural. It yeah, happens early learned. on in the process. It's but learned. Yeah, it's not something Savage Man had at the absolute beginning. I disagree a little bit because I just remembered this passage uh, oh. in the second part where he says, I'm speaking of compassion, which is a disposition suitable to creatures so weak and so subject to so many evils as we certainly are. By so much more the universal and useful to me of to mankind as it comes before any kind of reflection, at the same time so natural that the very brutes themselves sometimes give evident proof of it. Okay. Yeah. There we go. And so yeah, like elephants, for instance, you know, uh, mourn their own and bury their dead and help members of other species. So I don't know if that's what he's thinking of, but doesn't he use that example at one point? Yeah, he, he uses it for, animals. he uses apes as an example. He uses the pongos as an example. Or yeah. he says that, you know, that they had, it look, since they look so similar to humans, like pre-Darwinism, Darwinism, you know. That was actually pretty common. Um, yeah. He just discovered the mechanism. There were a lot of people who thought, hey, there might be a connection here. There might be a connection here. There yes. might, like, like, there's a thing that might be called evolution. We don't know about it yet, but, you know, yeah. we're, waiting for, we're waiting for this Charles, we're waiting for Chuck to come over and figure it out for us, but. These sexy he, monkeys. <laughs> it's like those orangutans so and he was making that whole distinction with the orangutans and the he called them pongos and it's just easy to call them pongos how the pongos how they had similar face structure to man had some like similar stature similar constitution and then he also said like how like how these anthropologists just took the most massive shit on these animals and describing these animals and saying that they weren't true, like they were just complete beasts and savages. And it's like, well, how are you a beast and a savage if you bury your own dead? You know, right. like how are you like this dumb creature that like right. runs away from the fire? Right. You know? So, <laughs> which so is like pre evolutionary, that's great, but this does the opposite of help your question of what makes savage man a man because if natural pity is common right, to all animals that's why that's why it's like that's why i get so stuck on savage man because it's just so it, he's not very clear on how that what happens right after it's I mean, like he, he jumped not... he it's like he he describes savage man and then boom you're right in society and it's just like I mean, he, he does talk a, a little bit of about a transition, because he's talking about... Well, like, I mean, like, the huts and all that, but then... Yeah, and, and then, like, property. And, and, and one thing he points out is the... Uh, about the... Eventually, there becomes a desire to appear what you are not. Like, that mm-hmm. yeah. that becomes a, an inherent part of civilization. I think at one point he says, the strong submitting to the weak. Like, the physically strong submitting to the physically weak. That there is... That that is is somewhere along that trajectory as well. I mean, maybe Rousseau is even more proto-Darwinist than it seems at first blush in that he don't think he doesn't think there is a hard difference between men and animals. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, there's not something that makes again this hypothetical abstraction all that different from animals. But he but he did say earlier that there is a difference between the animal which is the ingenious machine and hum, uh the savage man, because 
the one chooses and refuses by instinct, the other mm-hmm. from an act of free will. So it's almost like the thing that distinguishes the savage man from the animal is a savage man can completely refute all of nature's programming. It's like the, the seed for undoing and destroying the, the, the machinery of nature is planted in savage man, but that's it. That's the main thing that distinguishes humanity from animals. There's no moral or virtue or anything. It's that humans and savage man have like this, self-destructive component within them and i just remember something too i'm trying to find it he um something else that he says too the other thing that helps savage man get past his savagery uh for lack of a better word is um his ability to imagine things you know and like to form these abstract concepts yeah. You know, and he even says that when you think of a triangle, you already know, you can already see that triangle in your mind, mm-hmm. you know, right. and that's not an inherent trait of Savage Man. Like Savage Man can't see yeah. what all of this is. His imagination paints no pictures. His heart makes no demands on them. Like that's another mm-hmm. stage in the... That's another stage in the, in the progression and the perfectibility of man. From becoming a savage man to a man of society. Yes, but it's contrasted with the example, I think this is close to what you were quoting, Alex, about the the pigeon who would starve to death even though he had a plate of meat in front of him, and the dog who would starve to death even though he had a plate of corn in front of him, because neither can imagine that they could eat that as food and that it could sustain them. They're so stuck in their ways, right? Right, yeah. Savage man has a variety of things that he nourishes himself on. So there's some creativity and some imagination and some ability to reason yeah. and create even, again, in this ground zero yeah. savage man. The brute cannot deviate from the rule prescribed to it, even when it would be advantageous for it to do so. On And on the contrary, man frequently deviates from such rules to his own prejudice. So, like, maybe there was... In Rousseau's mind, a set of instructions was like, you're a human, you can only eat apples. That's your food. Like, you can't. And then, like, Savage Man got hungry one day and there was no apples and just tried something else and realized, oh, this also provides nourishment. Or, like, going against the sort of fatalistic programming that nature imposes on Savage Man is something that only Savage Man can do. All the other brutes starve to death, as in that example. And it was also, you know, that ties, like, that whole example ties into how language, how Rousseau says, like, language dies with each savage man. And that the responsibility of language is on whoever savage man's child is, because he has to learn whatever his dad or his just told him. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, like... There's not, there's not any more apples anymore, but apparently if I eat those berries on that tree over there or in that bush, then it'll be okay. And he has to find a way to communicate that with his parents, you know, and saying, is this okay to eat, you know, or whatever. And yeah, but again, that whole thing, you know, it dies with each generation. Hmm. So it's like. It's, it's like, again, like, how do you progress? How do you progress? How do you, pro- like, how do you, like, if, if you're, if language is a key construct for you to 
evolve past your savagery, but it dies with each generation. I mean, he admits this is a huge flaw. He, he very directly hand waves the language issue. Oh, yeah. He says, like, he's like, I'm not even going to talk about it. And then he spends two pages talking yeah, about it. Yeah, he's like, who can even imagine how you get from grunts and cries to verb tenses? And, you know, he says it very beautifully Which, for two more pages and adds no clarity. And, and literally no one knows. Like, anyone right. claiming to know anything about the origin of language is full of shit. Like, we know nothing about the origin of language beyond the most like like we evolved to have mouths with tongues like that's <laughs> <laughs> like there like there's no any speculation all of these guys are full of shit so but it's still interesting because it reveals like what he thinks is necessary for his you know interpretation of the development of humanity but even yeah. like as an aside you know it is quite genius like that's like probably the right greatest thing we have ever done is find a way to communicate using words. Oh yeah. We're yeah. the only species, the that, only can species do that can do that. Like mm-hmm. that is like whoever, whoever was the first one to really put that pen to paper and say, you know what? I'm going to track this. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't remember all of right. this. I'm going to like just to code us there. Like I'm going to pull a massive Samuel Johnson and just like fucking write all of this. Yeah. Right. And listeners, before you write in saying, my parakeet can say uh, verbs in all six tenses or whatever, that's not language. That's just memorization. There's like, there's a list of like eight criteria and no animal besides humans match all of them because we made them. Because we're the only (laughs) species that has language. So we feel very strongly. There's some sharp distinctions between man and animals. So fuck your parakeet. Yeah. Your parakeet can't write poetry. It couldn't write this. Fuck your parakeet, Karen. I don't care about it. There's no parakeet writing about the state of the natural parakeet for a reason. Um, Why does Karen always get shit on? It's just a great name to shit on it for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) But... What's really like, and just you know, so that way we can find something to talk about. Um, re like it's how he, I, I, I like how he writes, I hate how he makes his arguments because they're so <laughs> roundabout and they're so just completely convoluted and nothing, everything is tangential in this whole discourse. I mean, to be fair, it's great rhetoric because oh, you God, get to the end beautiful. of it, and you're like. I agree. Yeah. Like, I guess, uh, wait, yeah. but what did I agree to? Yeah, exactly. You're like, wait, what? And then you find yourself like rereading the same sentence. Like, okay, I'm gonna ignore this part of this semicolon and just like go to this, which yeah. is really great. It's amazingly perfect yeah. sentence structure for yeah. a run-on sentence that's like three pages long, and also in translation. And yeah. in translation, which is like it, this is, and he never really, he never received any formal schooling. Which is yeah. even more impressive in yeah. its own right. So. And when some of these things he says, like the factual claims he makes, are just patently false. Like the stuff about like savage man having no like desire to make art. It's like what about all we found all these cave paintings <laughs> from millennia or millennia ago, or the the thing about how in America they didn't have agriculture. He said they didn't have iron and corn. When it's like they they had tons of agriculture. And that was known at that. Well, the, I mean, maybe he didn't know it. I don't know how know things yeah. were filtering back to Europe, or he was keeping up with what. 
Right. He's filtering back. I mean, he walked everywhere, so something had to get lost in that whole thing. (laughs) That's another thing, too. Like, he would always, like, just to take a quick break, when he, because he would go from Geneva to Paris to Italy Mm -hmm. and, like, just make that, like, all that trek. And he never once took a horse. He walked the entire thing. He didn't. When he, he was younger. When he was younger. Yeah. All he, like, his first trip to Paris, he walked to Paris. Yeah. Like. It was like eight months damn. or something. Yeah. Damn. Or maybe the whole circuit was eight months. I don't know. It was a little Either way, he walked. That's, he walked that fucking thing. He was thing. fucking fit. He yeah. was probably so healthy. <laughs> yeah, there is kind of a, there's kind of a wellness movement aspect to Rousseau where he's like, it's, what if the medicine is, it, what, what if the medicine is making us sick? And the cure is to go outside. That's that why actually, I think that we're was so pretty. Like, that was pretty great when I read that, and, and how he said that, um, how man of society, like the like, the more you're in society, and the more you have all these medicines available to you, the, the sicker, way. the weaker you really are compared to savage man, because savage man is just there, and if yeah. he's gonna die, he's gonna die. It doesn't matter. Yeah, but if you're that's why I find Rousseau so fascinating because you can see threads of his the same argument still being had today. Yeah. People oh, yeah. think natural way on everything is better. Right, uh, yeah. It's clearly better for some things. It's clearly worse <laughs> for others. And there's such, seems to be such a deep difference between people and which one they incline to more. Right, yeah. I, I This is getting maybe too much in the context and history and all, all the stuff that we hate. We do. Um, uh, <laughs> we are the professional brief. haters <laughs> podcast. <laughs> But uh, Rousseau is often seen as representing, I mean, the left-right distinction didn't exist when he was writing, but like the, the leftmost flank of the Enlightenment movement. Uh, he really was. Because he's proposing that like uh, all society, monarchies included, is an arbitrary social contract. Like that these inequalities do not exist in nature. They were, a, the, they were something that were created after the fact. And that in the 1700s, when he lived, that was a great, I mean, it was increasingly, you know, more widespread belief, but it was definitely something that was spicy. It was a, it was a hot take, to say that, to say the least, which I guess sort of goes to, I have a question. Is this process reversible? Is the civilizing process, can you, can you wind back the clock and be like, clearly we made a mistake. Let's go, let's. Let's or is it unidirectional? Once you pass through here, you can't go back. As in, you become savage man, and just like a broken record, you're a savage man. You evolve into a man of society, evolve into a high man of society, and right. then you devolve somehow into savage man again. Right? Is it possible to go from the civilization society back to being a savage man? I mean, using his argument, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's certainly, it's, it's possible because, I mean, even in part one, you know, like where he's talking about like the, ne- like the necessities for laws and everything, like there must first be agreement that the more violent the passions are, the more necessary the laws are to contain them. Right. You know, like it's an unstable process. It's an unstable it's like process. This nuclear reactor of a law driven society can't exist forever. Yeah. And that passions, that if there was going to be one undoing, is that passions is going to be the thing that would 
probably destroy the perfect perfectibility of man. Yeah. So I think he addresses this pretty directly in Note 9. Note 9. Yes. It was very long. It's the last paragraph. (laughs) (laughs) And he gives, I think, a very specific pronouncement for people like him who realize the problems with civil society but are nonetheless, you know, grown and birthed and grew up in civil society, what they should do. So I think we sh- and I didn't understand all of it, so I'd like to read it and then pause and figure out what it means. Oh, that's then... fine. I wrote down a lot of notes on it. So it's the paragraph that starts, what then? What then must we destroy societies? And then about halfway down, <laughs> the sentence starts, as for men like me. Do we uh, all have it? Yes. Uh, the, as for men like me, yes. Yeah. Whose passions have forever destroyed their original simplicity, who can no longer feed on grass and acorns, nor get by without laws and chiefs. Okay, so for some people it can be entirely destroyed permanently. Mm -hmm. Those who were honored in their first father with supernatural lessons, those who will see in the intention of giving human actions from the beginning a morality they would not have acquired for a long time, the reason for a precept indifferent in itself and inexplicable in any other system, so he's still describing men like him who were born into society. He's giving descriptors and examples of like what he is as a person, right? And so they intend to give human action as it occurred in the beginning. Uh, those, those, in a word, who are convinced that the divine voice called the entire human race to the enlightenment and the happiness of the celestial intelligences. So that right there, like that, like if, if you're just reading this note and if you're reading it, you know, linearly with the text, this part right here, that was before he described man's abstractions, before he described how uh, savage man can't form abstractions. So he's saying that, I can, like, as a man of society, like, we can still form abstractions. Uh, so it's too late for me in that manner. I can form abstractions. There's no going it. back from that. So for men like me, all of these latter ones will attempt, through the exercise of virtues they oblige themselves to practice while learning to know them, to merit the eternal reward that they ought to respect for them. And then, okay, so these men, despite being civil men, will try to be virtuous. They will respect the sacred bonds of the societies of which they are members. Even though these men know what it's based on, they will love their fellow men and will serve them with all their power. They will scrupulously obey the laws and the men who are their authors and their ministers. They will honor above all the good and wise princes who will know how to prevent, cure, or palliate the pack of abuses and evils that always are ready to overpower us. They will animate the zeal of these worthy chiefs by showing them without fear or flattery the greatness of their task and the rigor of their duties. But they will despise no less for it a constitution that can be maintained only with the help of so many respectable people who are desired more often than they are obtained and from which, despite all their care, always arise more real calamities than apparent advantages. So if I could summarize, you won't do, you'll respect the laws of the state, Right. You'll suck up to the people in charge and remind them that they have such important special duties, even though you know it's never going to be enough and there will be all these vices and inequalities caused by society. 
Right. Does that sound like an accurate summary? Yes. Yes. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> you just uh, just roll with it. <laughs> We're <laughs> fucked. Yeah. <laughs> like you individually can be virtuous. That's about it. And the, um, even the notes here that I have on my uh, edition. Yeah. You have a note to the note. Yeah, I have a note. I have a note to the note, which is too meta. Um, it says that this passage is notoriously difficult to interpret. Rousseau appears to be attributing to his adversaries his own view that human beings would be better off without modern civilization, claiming for himself the view that religion, symbolized by God's command to Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree of knowledge, requires the preservation of the existing of social of the existing social order, even though he concludes by insisting that he will continue to despise it. <laughs> Was that the point of... And, this, and the, the obvious explanation is that Rousseau is trying to placate the censor. Yeah, it does kind of have that ring of, no, I'm not, who, me, overthrow? I wouldn't advocate that. Right, yeah. It would be ridiculous if there was some kind of French-style revolution. <laughs> like, that would be way too much to think about. <laughs> he even says that here. Like, the, like yeah. the guy that does this introduction, he even says that, like, yeah, Rousseau had no forethought whatsoever. Like, he could not, like, he, like, he could describe everything that was going on in France, and he could not see, like, yeah, shit's about to get real fucked right now. Like, he could or... not do that i mean it's also possible that he's avoiding the censor that this is something he just has to say because everything else he's saying is so radical right because so, he, he how could he lose more friends right like <laughs> like he has to yeah. like, like he this really is him the little support he has right that would yeah. be the title of this episode how to lose more friends by jean Jacques Rousseau. that's his autobiography right so wait so poll of the table do we do we believe that he means this i I think he's bullshitting a little bit. I think he's, yeah. I think he's just saying what needs to be said to get it published. But I think that he definitely published in his own name, but he did it like so covertly and knowing that he was going against the express wishes of the king. That yes, like how Alex said that you know he's doing this mainly just to save face and hope that it gets published. You so know? this doesn't answer. Alex's question at all because we don't and I, I agree I don't think he really means this yeah and and even in this passage he's talking about individuals like you as an individual with your abstract thinking maybe your brain is fucked but could society in in general cumulatively move away from society and back into a state of nature maybe it'll take several generations like it did to originally get here but do you think that it would be a voluntary or involuntary action? I feel like it would probably be involuntary, right? It would be a collapse of society. Yeah. Yeah. We're looking at an apocalypse of some kind here, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, couldn't you somewhat say that it we somewhat had that with the fall of the Roman society? I mean, like, there have probably been many periods. Like, there have been many periods. You could say, like, it came really close to, like. Well, you could say that there was a loss in standard of living, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yes, yes. Is it the same though? But but he, yeah, because he even says, like, even the most, you know, smallest tribe of, you know, indigenous peoples in America, or in this example, be like Vikings, right? 
that's still society. Those people still have, they still have a society mindset. They're not truly in a state of nature, just like Tarzan going through, you know, living on, living on his own. Uh, they're still, you know, their brain still has the distinction virus. And how long would it take to fade? I mean, would it take generations? But also we have language now, so we pass down our culture. Right, yeah. yeah. How do you, you know? how do you, how do you, how do you cross the language barrier? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you cross it back in the yeah, opposite how do you, how do you cross it back in the opposite we're going to teach our kids yeah. the same things about public esteem and what we call culture now and useless yeah. arts that he says contribute to all of this. So how could you ever know that? It, it would have to be just an entire generation of feral children because, <laughs> because this is again getting, you know, in, in linguistics, there is a critical period where if you do not learn a language, you can never learn a language. This happens with feral children where if they're left in the woods and they learn how to survive on their own, they're truly like the closest example of Rousseau's savage man. They're, these humans that are living out there and surviving on their own, uh, but they can never learn language no matter how hard it's imposed on them. Their brain will just not accept it. And so that would have to be the only thing, right? Is we just stop teaching our kids language and then... Yeah, because language would be the very first thing that you would have to... Yeah. You would have to get rid of language he, to go all the way back. Well, and but can, even, you, can you go? Oh, where do you say it? You know, Keep further going. back towards natural man and the society they had without getting all the way to zero, because it's a spectrum, as we've talked about. Right. Yeah. I agree. You would have to get rid of language to go all the way back to, you know, point zero. Right. But could you push it back any further, just as a matter of degrees from where further. we are now? That's yeah. my question. Yeah. How would you scale it back? Get rid of property rights. But that's going further, according to Marxist Hegelian teleology. Uh, <laughs> so there was a thing about you said about language, and I'm trying to find the passage for it. Yeah. What does it say um, in general? I might have it written down. It's how I think I kind of found it. It's where he's talking about language. How um, how can you form a coherent thought without language? Yeah. Every general idea is purely intellectual, like that area. Yeah. Uh, somewhat like man's. Uh, yes. Okay. I feel um, like I said that very quickly. I said it was every general idea is purely intellectual. I wrote that down somewhere. I like really, really, really wrote it down somewhere. But that's where it starts. I think is that like how do you? Because that would be that you like. Just to further yeah. your point, that's really where it would start, is that because we don't have this language anymore, like, how can we form a grammatical thought? And if we can't form a grammatical thought, how can you form a comprehensive thought? You know? And then how can, how we, can, we, ab- how can we have... How can we abstract from that? Okay, but okay. he also... Okay, so that's for going back to zero. we got to get rid yeah. of language. But he... Okay, go ahead. No, get, you, go, you go ahead. I, okay. He also mentions a middle place... Between zero and, you know, decadent French society in the 18th century that he calls a middle ground. Okay. So is, let's like, I want to read that. Where's that? Is that that going to detract from where you're going? Okay. It's in part two. Uh, It's after he has talked about uh, public morality, the development of laws, And this, the paragraph starts, but it must be noted that 
society, society in its beginning stages and the relations already established among men required in them qualities different from those that they derive from their primitive constitutions. And then I want to skip ahead to the sentence that starts, hence. Hence already men had become less forbearing, and although natural pity had undergone some alteration, this period of the development of human faculties maintaining a middle position between the indolence of our primitive state and the petulant activity of our egocentrism must have been the happiest and most durable epoch. All right, there it is. Yeah. <laughs> like how do we get there and how what is there? it I don't know. okay okay <laughs> all right alex what is it so let's take let's take france in the 1700s uh you're rousseau and you're now king what do you do to fuck this society so that it goes back to the stone age just be Wait, yourself is that what you want? <laughs> well like like what would be the reverse like let's take all the steps that we got there and like let's undo see how we can undo each step till we get to this ideal state okay and so by stone ages you think the Stone Ages are probably roughly... I think he's probably... Equivalent to this middle period. This, like, loose confederation of people living in, what does he say, transient commerce and neighboring huts. Yeah, so at this point, uh, I don't know if there's property yet, but people are somewhat living together. Uh, We have, you know, nuclear families, and people have learned some degree of public esteem. There's song and dance somehow. Uh, and I don't know how else to describe this middle period that's so great. He doesn't seem to give a whole lot of description either. So how would you get back to here is your question. That's also, yeah, because he doesn't he doesn't define it as, as much as he does the state of pure savagery and pure civilization. I mean, it, one of the defining circumstances seems to be just the small size of the groups of people. Yeah, it's very local. It's very local. Um, so it, you have less you would de- things to compare be... and let your mind isn't sharpened by a multitude of comparisons. Mm-hmm. That would definitely be a thing that would have to happen. Is that because he starts off in the very, very beginning, you know, he starts off when he's describing this, like, you know, like he starts off with these really big city, like these big city states. So maybe that's the process, you know, like you right. start from there, you know, that blows up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Just fracture that fractures off and, and all that. And it's so fractured and disconnected by distance. And I would assume that you would need, like, yeah. right. You would need to, like, distance. Because you need a small population you need a small over popula- a large area, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. And that would be probably step one. Yes. The other thing he says in the paragraph after that. As long as men were content with the rustic huts, as long as they were limited to making their clothing out of skins sewn together with thorns or fish bones, adorning themselves with feathers and shells, painting their bodies with various colors, perfecting or embellishing their bows and arrows, using sharp-edged stones to make some fishing canoes or some crude musical instruments. It's a long sentence, sorry. Right, yeah. In a word, as long as they applied themselves exclusively to tasks that a single individual could do, and to the arts that did not require the co- cooperation of several hands, they lived as free, healthy, good, and happy as they could in accordance with their nature. But as soon as one man needed the help of another, as soon as one man realized that it was useful for a single individual to have provisions for two, equality disappeared, property came into existence, labor became necessary. So Pol Pot is like the ideal Rousseauian guy live in huts sew fish bones together to 
just live a scattered rural existence. Yeah, it, it it almost seems like it would it would be impossible, even though if even though in theory we could conceive of like scattering people out very distantly and and living in these very local communities, there's just too many people and the earth is too settled for that to be a reality. Well, also what he says here is that it was a realization that separated these two stages right. of development. You can't undo a realization. Yeah, yeah. like we the knowledge all, is out there. Yeah, yeah, we all have the idea of division of labor and we might, uh, ornament and stuff like that. You can't be, you can't make me unrealize that. We, we, right. we might be able to say for one realization you might be able to say that you know like you were able to like stop like we, we got below a certain point but you know because we've already passed that stage of savage man where we like had like started passing that next level to perfectibility of like of, of achieving our potential it's easier for us to make those realizations you know Yes. So it would, Our it would minds lose are it. More developed, Our yeah. minds are more developed, and you can't. I, I I don't know how you undevelop a mind naturally. Right. Right. And you to know. be clear, <laughs> we're not talking about we're, we're the not, actual. We're, we're not. We're not anarchists. We're not. We're talking <laughs> we about. We don't actually the believe in so, you know some sort of hierarchy of being among people. Hypothetically, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. That that sort of. This is somewhat related, but also kind of tangential. One of the things that really stuck out to me in this essay, and it's like one of the big ideas that I think I'm going to carry from it, is when he talks about the way in which reason and these, you know, intellectual mind produces evils. It's our national natural inclination is towards good and compassion, or at least not like like senseless violence. But it is the it is you know, to quote him. Um, it is reason which turns man's mind back upon itself and divides him from everything that could disturb or afflict him. It is philosophy, philosophy that, I, that isolates him and bids him say at the sight of misfortunes of others, perish if you will, I am secure. A murderer may with impunity be committed under his window. He has only to put his hands to his ears and argue a little with himself to prevent nature, which is shocked within him from identifying itself with the unfortunate sufferer. So as our minds have gotten more powerful and our reason has been sharpened, we can allow all sorts of evil and, and atrocity to be committed. I mean, because we can rationalize them away. Right. It's yeah. in the word rationalizing. It's rationalizing. Yeah. We can yeah. rationalize them away. Like we like to think of nature as it's so, it's so sad, savage AF, like panthers are ripping capybara necks off, but animals don't go to war. They don't, they don't kill each other beyond the point that's necessary. Even animals that do a little bit of torture, like uh, uh, cats, like cats with their prey. Ha it has a utilitarian function for them. Like they don't just do it because they like. What's the function? Well, it's uh, I forget what it is, <laughs> but I remember. <laughs> it, but but there, but there was like you know they don't just do it because they think it's fun. They do it because. Right. There is something about I don't know sharpening their. It's practice. Or it's something. practice or something like like they're not. I'll take your word for it. They're not like fucking genocidaires in killing people in you know uh, yeah. Armenia or whatever you know like it's. It's yeah qualitatively. And I mean you can even say that you can apply that to man too you know like excluding you know passion if you exclude passion it it 
it follows for men. Right. Because I'm like I won't kill anybody unless I can feel like you are trying to harm me and you want to kill me. Right. I'm not gonna savagely murder you. I'm only going to do what I need to do to keep myself and the state of nature balanced. Right, yeah. There's no need for me to kill you and burn the forest that you're in. Right, yeah. There's no need to go, you know, complete total war. Yeah, there's no need to go to complete total war over my wife who left me for another man and is now living in this tower, so I'm going to have this 10-year war. (laughs) Right. I'm not doing that. That's not not on your radar. That's not on my radar. Um, Maybe and this... he specifically, in the section on love and lust, talks about how these societal conceptions that you have, one partner, long-term, uh, and forever, give rise to jealousy. Yeah, that's yeah. the yeah. Because you, like, it's like, if there, and that's why he says, like, there's one thing that can just totally destroy what man would be. It would be yeah. passion, and passion what would be, the, like, the ultimate undoing yeah. of our current so like we, right. we 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 may not ever go back to being savage man but we can go back to being an extremely fragmented yeah animal essentially where we have these small right. very extremely combative yep. yeah he uses the example of the robust child yes right that's not a real savage man that's a, a child who is angry and entitled and therefore violent and throws temper tantrums. that's what we would be if we regressed. And that's, right, what, yeah. and that's the lowest we would get to. Apo- the apocalypse would just... Yeah, it, would ne- it wouldn't send us far <laughs> enough back to get to, to the, you know, Garden of Eden that was original savagery. But, yeah, maybe this is too topical, but thinking about this quote and, like, the, the way in which reason can pervert and distort our morals seeing all this horrible stuff at the border, right? You, you look on, yeah. you see all these concentration camps of kids being put in cages and all these horrible things. Go to the comment sections of any of those local news and it's people rationalizing that away, just being like, this is what the law says. This is what, like, there is this infinite capacity of people to to justify horrible images of of, of things Objection, that, and this And th- these are objectionably... Objectively horrible. They're horrific. They're like, horrific. like just like the, can... the experience of being confronted with them inspires a kind of that deep-seated natural compassion. But the fact that there can be people that can suppress that shows and, and use things like law and rationale. Like, it's... He says that, too, that reason. Doesn't he say something about reason, how reason can also be somewhat of an undoing, too? Well, he specifically says that the passions are what refine and develop our reason. Yes. So it's not, so it is these passions and these acquisitiveness and this desire to justify ourselves in society that actually make us smart. (laughs) Yes, because we like, we, we, we have our passions and then our curiosity is what, you know, um, is what satisfies our passions. Like when we, when you're curious about art, like whenever we're, we see this, like, oh, this is cool. And then you, de- you delve deeper into it and you learn more about it and you learn more about it because you're actually passionate about it. You're increasing knowledge. I think your that's very generous, base. but I don't think he thought of curiosity as a passion. I think well, no, no, no. Like, no, no, no. Like, he, he used it as a tool. He saw okay, that yeah. curiosity as a tool, right. not, as a, not, not as a passion. I like think you're passionate about something and then, you're curi- and then your curiosity serves as your drive to... to 
learn more about it. The passion is the motivation for it. Yeah, but I think when you say is passionate about something, I think that's a way more positive spin because you could be passionate about the earth or something. I think he means passions like greed, lust, power. It's almost like, and I don't know if he defines passion in here explicitly, but it's sort of like uh, passion is those additional wants that society has created bubbling up. Like we've created so many (laughs) things that we need just live a basic fucking enjoyable life that we're in this constant fiery state of want of just going to explode at one point. The, the, the pressure under the crust will erupt into a volcano. Well, and that those desires and that acquisitiveness leads us to plot out, to use our brain, our reason, to figure out how to get the things we want. Yeah. So for mm-hmm. him, reason is not you know, abstract and pure and totally separate from our emotions. We are, we have the reason we have because we want things. Right. It just, it just, we, we solve one problem and create two in turn. It's like, yeah, like we've solved the problems of, of to a certain extent food scarcity, but now we want a lot of variety in our food and we need to have healthy food. Mm-hmm. We make sure our food is self sourced. And there's well a lot and, of engineering yeah. and creativity and intelligence that goes into solving those yeah. problems. Right. That we, created out of our desires yeah doesn't even say at one point where it's like despite all of these conveniences men in society are constantly depressed they're yes. always <laughs> lamenting trying, i am trying to find that exact thing and i can't <laughs> find it but he but yeah we know he, he does says but it. we know yeah, he says it. it yeah um there it is do you want to read it maybe that'll be our closing quote. Um, oh closing quote closing quote cq where did I write it? BC. Well, and then we'll go around and ask if there's anything right. else. Right. Additional Jeez. questions. Yeah. Is it sometimes question the disputing with Zomiel? Mine, yeah, it's in note nine. Note nine was a great note. So it's a really good note, and it took me a while to figure out why. It was like, what are you doing? And then it's like, oh my God. And then it was just so, it, it's a great note. So on that note, it's like somewhere towards the... Mm, middle-ish um it says it starts with if someone answers me by claiming that society is constituted in such a manner that each man gains by serving others i will reply that this would be very well good provided he did not gain still more by harming them this the there is no profit however legitimate that is not surpassed by one that can be made illegitimately and wrong done to a neighbor is always more lucrative than service than services. It is therefore no longer a question of anything but finding the means of being assured of impunity. And that and this is this is what the powerful spend all their strength on and the weak all their clever mach- mach- uh, machinations. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, just one little additional thing there about reason being self-destructive. It's so fascinating that all these settlers and conquistadors of the Americas uh, definitely had this the same kind of idea of this noble savagery, of this land of bounty and nature and people living in harmony with it, and were so impressed. Like, all the people that went there were just blown away by what they saw, and yet the first thing they did was impose their European style of agriculture and society on this land of infinite wealth. Yeah. They couldn't just leave it. They couldn't just leave it. Yeah. They, or they couldn't just integrate themselves into what to them seemed like a superior way of life. Um, so, yeah. Does anyone have any questions that we didn't get to? Just Ooh. 
that you would want to think about in the future? Y'all go first. I need to go through some stuff because I have a lot of... So, we touched on this briefly, but I liked what he said about egocentricism versus true love of self. The distinction between those, you know, one seeming to be very outward-based, one inward-based. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Um, and I will probably go back and read a little bit the sections that talked about that. I think that... There's one passage where he talks about uh, what constitutes the supreme happiness of the savage man would reduce the other to despair and vice versa. It's sort of like, what are the things that um, are the supreme happiness of living in society? And, and what are the virtues and values of those things that Rousseau would either agree with or maybe he's underselling a little bit? Like, what's the other side of this? Like, what what's the devil's advocate case yeah. for, like, actually society does have all of these horrible downsides, but what be the argument? Like, it's actually better than living in... Or in there nature. are good things that you can only get in civil society. The only things you can get in civil elsewhere. society. That yeah, would be like, interesting. What are the full-weighted case? Yeah. For me, like, uh, I don't know. I mean, this, there's no way that there's this... That I don't have any questions. It's just hard to find a particular question to form because yeah. it's so... It's, it's just, like, everything that he writes in this is like he just writes so well that um i could find a question like just any given like I just read one passage like hey we could talk about right. that forever right yeah so it's it's just hard for me to pick one thing <laughs> at the moment um, that's okay They're, yeah, books yeah. Are meant to, these books are meant to be read and reread so yeah and and i will probably re re, re uh read this i've started fighting i was very early on, I was like, I'm not going to write in the book. I'm not going to do it. I'm oh, not going to do though. it. Yeah, you gotta, yeah. And then I was that's like, the best way. fuck. Yeah. And then it's like, and then you just start writing. And it just, it makes more sense to write in the book yeah. than to not write in the book. You are very different though, because you do ebooks. You have, I do ebooks. Yeah. You do 100%. You're ebook person. I'm an ebook person. I'm appalled person. by that, readers. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, if you want to spend a lot of money to kill the forests, sure, but <laughs> but I'm living in commune with nature with my glowing <laughs> wood <tablet>. <laughs> Um How do you, like, so just on that, like, how, do you find that it's, like, the, did you see that the, the transition was easy or difficult? Or, did you see, or yeah. transition from... From hard copy to... <laughs> You know, you were never a big reader. I was never a big hard copy reader. I always, oh, really? uh, yeah. When I started reading more, when like late high school, early college, and stuff, uh, debt was all ebooks because, it, and it's honestly the the physical factor doesn't really matter as much. It's the ease with which I can download, you know, yeah. these books and consolidating notes is so much easier when it's on an ebook. Like, I don't have to like write if it's something like that's an amazing quote i don't have to like write it out or type it out whatever uh speaking of books and perhaps a next book and then the next book um so next week we're reading la ruche fold or no uh, ruche foucault ruche foucault's <laughs> <laughs> uh, smooth maxims uh yes that'll be next week because if you're it listening, it doesn't fucking matter because you, you don't be exist. <laughs> you don't exist. We're, We're talking to yet, no one. So, like... so uh, 
We'll have a podcast we'll have on a podcast. Mexico. What will happen is that you'll listen to this when we have a gap in our schedule and we're we're flustered and we need to get a book. We need to get an episode released quickly. Because we are very paranoid about yeah. having no set schedule yeah. about yeah. this. Uh, anyway, it'll be Rich Foucault. We're but, reading that because yeah. he talks a lot about self-love. Yeah. Uh, Something that... It was about a century before Rousseau, but I yeah. think he... Rousseau has... definitely needed to read it. Oh, I'm sure he did. <laughs> yeah, Foucault was a century before Rousseau. Okay. So I, I'm sure yeah. Rousseau was well acquainted with this. He's very catty, and it's just a blast. So that's yeah. what we'll be doing yeah. next time. That'll be next time. Well, that's it. 